Hello, and welcome to another message from Aldinga Bay Baptist Church. If you'd like to find out more about us or what we believe, please visit aldingabaybaptist.org.au. Lord, we, uh, we thank you that we can be here. It's so important, as Chris reminded us, uh, just to be, to be your people, uh, to be, uh, to be uh, able to uh, worship you, to gather together, to encourage one another. Uh, so we thank you for the opportunity that it presents this morning. And for the, all the people that are here, uh, coming back after what's been a really solid time with, with COVID, we uh, just pray that you continue to be with our nation, be with our leaders, and uh, help them, Father, uh, in the decisions that they have to make during these really difficult times. Think about the world, uh, stuff going on in Ukraine, stuff going on in Russia, and uh, things in Tonga after the devastation over there. We just commit all these people and the things around the world to you. And Lord, pray that uh, through it all, you'd be glorified and the gospel will be preached and that people would come to know Jesus, because that's what we want. We pray for people of this land that they come to know Jesus as well. This we commit to you, your glorious sake. Amen. When we were praying, my Bible blew open. I had a note that blew over here, so I'm going to go get that now because I'm going to need that. The joys of meeting outdoors. There we go. We're back on song now, so that's great. Um, so today, and we're continuing our footsteps. Uh, of the King series, and uh, it's, uh, as we know, the story of the wedding at Cana, which is a, strikes me, it's just a pretty simple story, really, isn't it? And one that we probably all know uh, reasonably, it's, you know, there's a wedding in Cana, uh, Jesus goes there, along with his mother, his disciples, they run out of wine, and Jesus turns the water into wine, which is the very first miracle that Jesus does, John tells us. So it's a simple story. But one of the things I really appreciate about the Bible uh, is that sometimes when you study the Bible, it's a little bit like watching a David Attenborough uh, documentary. You know, it's uh, like watching The Secret Life of Plants or something like that. You think you know a thing or two about nature, and then uh, you watch David Attenborough and you realise, oh, there's actually a little bit more going on than what I thought. You know, I remember learning about this woolly bear caterpillar that, uh, that gets frozen every Arctic winter. And in the springtime, it thaws out and just carries on with life like nothing ever happened. It's like, ah, oh, that's quite amazing. I never knew that happened. Or you learn about the seeds and the different types of seeds. There's seeds that are like gliders and seeds that are like helicopters and seeds that get exploded out of the mother plant like a water cannon. And it's just incredible all the different things that go on. Story of the Wedding in Cana uh, has got lots of different things that are going on. And, and um, some of them not as clear as others, but perhaps they're there. But I thought it'd be good just to stop and have a think about that this morning. It's a great, it's a great uh, passage for Epiphany, because Epiphany is about helping us to see Jesus. And again, we do see something about him in this text today. So what is it that we're supposed to learn about Jesus is really the question. How should that impact you today with all the things that you're going through? And that's uh, that's the thought. So two thoughts, two points. One is Jesus, the obedient son. And then secondly, Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom. I seem to be having some issues here dropping in and out today, but I'll just... Uh, repeat myself if it drops out. How's that sound? But um, it might just be the wind. Uh, so anyway, Jesus, the obedient son. Let me read to you just those first few verses that Lexi read to us again. And they're in your handout sheets anyway, or follow along your Bibles. But 
Here it goes. There's a few things to observe, isn't there? On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with the disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So a few things going on. Uh, firstly, it's the third day, uh, John tells us, John the Apostle tells us. And you sort of get to ask yourself the question, the third day since what? You know, uh, what's happening in this passage? And I don't know if you noticed, because we preached from John uh, 1 last week, so the passage before this, but there's this timeline that actually runs through John chapter 1 and John chapter 2. Uh, and it's, kind of, it's a week, really, that gets played out for us. It's just an interesting thing, and, you know, it doesn't tie in heaps with our sermon this morning, but I just thought it's just worth, it's worth mentioning. So this is timeline that goes back to verse 19 of chapter 1. That's where it starts. The, the clock starts ticking, and it talks about John the Baptist, his testimony. People come to him and they say, are you the Messiah, John the Baptist? Because he's, he's got all this authority. He's baptising people down by the Jordan. They say, are you the Messiah or are you Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not. But then he goes on and he talks about the coming Messiah. That's day one. And then you get day two in, in John's little timeline here. This is John the Apostle writing the book, not to be confused with John the Baptist, who we're talking about at the moment. But uh, in verse 29, after introducing John the Baptist, it says the next day uh, Jesus was coming toward John and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So it's day two. Then day three is the text we had last week. The next day again, it says, John was standing with his disciples, and again he says, Behold the Lamb of God, and two of the disciples go after Jesus. Then day four is in verse 43. The very next day again, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he called Philip. So it's kind of, something's going on here. And then you get to this passage in chapter 2, and it says, On the third day. So that would be two full days after the call of Philip, which is all up in six days. So is there something behind that? And the answer is, I actually don't know, uh, but a few people have sort of speculated. And I reckon there's something in it, I like it anyway. The speculated is kind of like John the Apostle giving a shout-out to the six days of creation. You know, way back in Genesis 1, God creates the world in six days. And then in John chapter 1, right at the very beginning, it talks about Jesus as the Word of God. Remember that famous passage? You know, the Word became flesh. He would dwell amongst us. He was a co-creator with the Father. And then you come to, from verse 19 in John chapter 1, right through to this passage we've got today. And what's happening, it seems to be, is this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's, it's kind of like John is saying, you know, the world was created in six days, and here's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Here's the six days, the countdown, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where he makes all things new. Now, that could be something that's there. I'm not sure, but it's worth thinking about because it tells us something about how powerful the ministry of Jesus is. And Jesus, who comes into this world, he changes everything. Whether it's supposed to be meant that way or not, it is the countdown to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It just happens to be six days, and he does happen to make all things new, which is excellent. So moving from there, though, on this third day, as John puts it here, there's a wedding in Cana, and Jesus gets invited, along with Jesus' mother, who we know as Mary, and some of the disciples. And it's interesting, there's a few things just to note. Cana's not far from Nazareth, where Jesus grows up. 
that's probably about Odinga to Wollonga, distance away. And um, it could just be lost on us if we don't mention it. There's a good reason why Jesus is invited. It's not because he's a superstar. He's invited because he is no doubt a friend. Oh, we're back again. Okay. Well, he, is, he, is a, he is a friend of this family. If this is getting really bad, I'll just grab a, a mic. Uh, would that be better? Yeah. <laughs> it is a comedy. I can hear that laugh. Maybe it's, I don't know this one. I just didn't get this one initially because I thought I was going to do the same thing. But it might not. We'll try. We've got two mics going here. So uh, hopefully it'll work. Anyway, Jesus is invited to, uh, to this wedding because he's a friend. Uh, you know, these are probably close friends. Or maybe they're even family. Um, and they're, they're at this wedding celebrating this together. It's supposed to be, as you, like most weddings, just a really good time. You know, it's the day of days. Or in this case, because in the ancient world, in the first century, weddings would often go for a week. It was big events. Um, but there's a sense of embarrassment to this wedding, as we know, because they run out of wine. Um, and, and that's a big deal because, because of the, uh, just the hospitality culture that's around the first century. And uh, wine was just a big part of everything they did, but they were, they were there celebrating the wine needed to be there. And, and to make matters worse, this is where it becomes probably a point of embarrassment, is that you can't just blame the caterers. Like, how oh, we booked these caterers and, and we were you know, really hoping that they would do a good job, but they actually undercated everything. But you can't say that here because there were no caterers. Uh, the person that was responsible for providing the wine was the groom. And so it made him look pretty bad, made him look a little bit incompetent. And so I think that's probably why Mary, a lot of people speculate this, and I think it's got some point, that's probably why Mary comes to Jesus and says, oh, gee, can you do something to help, you know, to paraphrase the passage, they've run out of wine. Uh, you think, why does she go to Jesus? You know, maybe is she expecting him to do a miracle? Well, you know, automatically my brain sort of goes there. You know, Jesus is, he's, Mary's thinking Jesus will just do something. You know, in the Apocrypha, which is uh, non-scripture, you know, uh, letters are, are written, uh, uh, some of the gospel, uh, Gnostic sort of gospels that are written in the second century, they have Jesus making clay birds and, you know, breathing life into them when he's a baby, you know, and they fly away. But we don't actually think those things are true because John says this is Jesus' first miracle that's about to happen here at, at Cana. So it's not likely that Mary is actually coming to Jesus, hoping that he's going to do a miracle here. Rather, Jesus is, I'm sorry, Mary's probably just coming to Jesus because he's the most competent person that she knows. You know, Joseph doesn't get mentioned here. He's probably dead. Jesus is the oldest son, and he's Jesus. And she's embarrassed for this family because they've run out of wine. And so she just comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Almost like, what, what do you think? What can we do? Which sounds fair enough, really. But it's, what's very interesting about this, and if you read it through, if you've read it through at any time, it doesn't sound like Jesus' best moment in the way that he responds to Mary, does it? It's just really blunt. What does he say? You know, you can look at it in your sheets. You probably just already know, but he, he's not really very warm. He simply says, woman, what has that got to do with us? Well, what's that got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So why does he say that? I mean, that's the, that's the $64 question, really, isn't it? Why does he say... That. Why is he so cold, in fact, toward his mother? You know, you'd expect Jesus to say, gee, mum, that's a great observation, or sorry, mum, I can't even help right now. But he doesn't actually say that. He actually says, woman, what does that got to do with me? And it, and it is interesting that 
when you refer to a, a person in the other culture or, or a, uh, a lady in the other culture by woman uh, in that culture, uh, you really are using the language that you'd use for a stranger. Uh, so you think about, there's a couple of times where it's used, you think about Mary Magdalene, a different Mary. Between the Marys and the Johns, you've got to keep up uh, when you read through the Gospels. But a different Mary, she is Mary Magdalene. She's after the resurrection of Jesus. Remember this story? She's outside the tomb. And Jesus is raised and he's outside. She thinks he's the gardener. And Jesus says to her, woman, who are you looking for? And she just thinks he's the gardener because he's just using language that a stranger would use. And that's exactly the same language that Jesus is using toward his mother here. Now, why would he do that? Uh, why, would he, why would he talk to his mum in that way? Well, I guess one of the things about this passage is that it doesn't come right out and tell you exactly, but it gives you a few clues, and I'm pretty sure we're on the money with this one. Jesus says that. We know this, that Jesus says that because his hour has not yet come. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's actually a phrase that's used over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, isn't it? In fact, there's a couple of times it's used where it's exactly this case where it says, Jesus' hour has not yet come. He uses it three times in the first 11 chapters, just that way. This is one of them. And then in chapter 12, all of a sudden, after some events that unfold, Jesus says, my hour has now come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless a grain of wheat is uh, thrown into the ground, dies, it produces no fruit. And so he's talking about his crucifixion. So this is what I want you to hear. The hour of Jesus is always about his crucifixion. And what seems to be going on here is that this miracle, which is about to take place, is going to commence Jesus' journey to the cross. It is the thing that is going to begin his ministry. And Jesus, even though he loves his mother, he is not about to start that journey on anybody's bidding even his mother's bidding, without it being his Father in Heaven's time, where he has told him it is time. This is what Jesus says all the time. I have come not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So I think that's what's going on. Jesus is deliberately being cold here, using stranger language, because he's saying, this is none of your business. Even though Mary probably isn't going for that, Necessarily, She doesn't understand all that's being played out, no doubt. But Jesus does. That's the point. And he's making the point. It is basically none of your business, nobody's business. It's between me and the Father when this all begins. And so he talks to her in that way. I think that that is a point that is made for our benefit as readers because there's an application in that for all of us. And that is that there are a lot of voices in my life as there are in your life. A lot of people that you love and you're going to feel divided at times. You're going to feel, what do I do? Do I go with them or do I go with God and what I know God would have me to do? Whose voice are we listening to? And very often, if we're going to go and follow God, which is what we call to as Christians, you know, the broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. Well, Jesus' words in Luke 14, you know, unless you hate your father, mother, your own life also, by comparison, you are not fit to be my disciple. It's what we're called to. We are called to listen to the voice of God. But I tell you what, it's going to be a challenge because there are so many things drawing on us 
to go the other way, to go to go after the things that we love, the people we love. One of the hardest things I reckon, it's worth thinking about, is one of the hardest things that we can face in our life. What voices are we going to listen to? Why on earth would we go after following God? Why should we do that? Well, it's because of what we're called to. But there's also something else to it. It's worth noting that's what Jesus is like. It's what we're to be like. We should ask the question, is it true of us? Are there other voices that we're listening to at the moment that perhaps we shouldn't be? And we need to also realise that that it um, has a go. The road to apostasy is by, is paved with apathy. And so the idea is that small compromise here becomes a large compromise later. And before you know it, you're a very long way from following Jesus. That's worth thinking about. That's worth remembering. There's something else going on here as well. And that is that there's a sense of joy in this passage. It's a wedding, and there is a real sense of joy around it. And that's, that really leads into the second point, really. Jesus, the obedient son, he's obedient not so much to his mother, but he's obedient where it counts. He's obedient to his heavenly father. A great challenge for us. But then secondly, Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. It takes me a little while to get to it, but let me just start you on a journey. This, this passage is a passage that's really lavish, isn't it, in so many ways. Let's put this one microphone down. We'll, we'll trust the other one for a tick. Got to be quick there, Jamie. Yeah. So um, this might even just work now. Who knows? This is a passage that's really lavish because uh, you know, Jesus comes and uh, he, he does do something about it. You know, it's, it's God's time. I think we're supposed to read that into it. And that's what it says. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. So it's interesting, isn't it? There's, there's something huge about all this. The six, you know, those, those, to put it in our language, those six stone jars hold about 100 litres each. Uh, so there's around about 600 litres, or maybe a little bit more, of water. Uh, it's a lot of water that's going to be turned into wine. And, and uh, that's what happens. They fill them up, and then he says to the, to the servants, who know what's going on, but nobody else knows what's going on other than Jesus' disciples. They fill them up, and then take some of that, take it to the master of the ceremony. And he does that. And uh, he just breaks into praise. He goes to the bridegroom because, again, he's, you know, he thinks the bridegroom's organised all of this. And it's, it's just it's worth noting his words because we're supposed to note them, sort of how this all goes. It's not just a small thing. It's, it's massive in his mind. The master of the feast calls the bridegroom and said to him, everybody serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. It's like he's just... He's perplexed. This is amazing. And this is, there's so much of this, and it's so good. You know, how come you've done that? But he doesn't realise that the truth of the matter is that, obviously, what we know is it's Jesus. But it's worth pausing and thinking about that. You know, this is what I think. You know, Jesus is always really lavish, isn't he? Don't let that be lost on you. How many times do we see that? You know, Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know, what was it with? Two loaves, no, was it five loaves and two fish? Yeah, the right way around. It's always a trick. Uh, two, five loaves and two fish, and he, he feeds 5,000, and then afterwards, it's not like there's just enough, but there's 12 baskets full of fragments left over. Well, I think about the time in John chapter 20, right at the back of this book, 
you know, where after the resurrection, disciples have gone fishing. Do you remember that story? And it's, it's kind of a story that circulates a couple of times in different formats, but these fishermen have fished all night and they've caught absolutely nothing. Then Jesus is standing on the shore and he yells out at the sea of Tiberias where they are, fellas, throw out your nets on the other side. And they catch, it's, it's amazing, John tells us, for some random reason, there were 153 large fish. It doesn't get explained, you know, but what it does tell us is that Jesus is lavish and it's great. You know, when Jesus is there and he does something, he really turns it on. And the water turning into wine is ridiculous. There is so much there and of such great quality, but it's telling us something about Jesus. I really like this story, or this quote rather, by a commentator I was reading this week. His name is Ramsey Michaels. And he says this, I just like the way that he articulated it. Here the magnitude of the impending miracle stands in almost humorous contrast to the triviality of the need. But the humour makes the serious point that when Jesus gives life, he gives it abundantly, far beyond all need or expectation. Yeah, I think that's the point that we're supposed to hear there, that when Jesus gives life, he gives it abundantly, far greater than anything that was even needed or expected. Did you hear that? Did you hear that about your own life as well? And all the different things and the struggles? Did you hear that about the hope that we have in Jesus? He gives it abundantly, not just here, but he continues to do it. I reckon you need to hear that. I think I need to hear that because I can lose sight of that with all the struggles. See, what's the point of all of this, though? Well, the point of all this is sort of seen in that in the last verse, really, where it wraps it up, the second to last verse, and it, and it says this, this is the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Uh, that's, there's just a little point there which is slightly nerdy, but it's worth hearing. When John talks about miracles, he always talks about them as signs. It's the Greek word means signs. In the synoptics, which you know is Matthew, Mark and Luke, they never refer to as signs. They're always referred to as mighty works or wonders. And there's a difference in emphasis. They're both miracles and they're both trying to make a point. The synoptics are making this point that he is the king who has come to overthrow evil. And in his kingdom, there is the end of suffering. All will flourish. It's a, it's a message of what's called eschatology. End times, it will all end well with glory. That's what the synoptics are making. But John, he's using the, the term signs. As much as it's true, he's not so much making that point. His, his point is more what's called Christological rather than eschatological. He's saying, look at the king. The king himself is so great. This is telling you something about who he is. He is the one that brings things abundantly. In fact, I think, even though it's not stipulated, I think it's making the point that he is the one who is the ultimate bridegroom. Because that's messianic language. It's language in the Old Testament. It talks about the fact that the that God is the husband. He is the one who is going to take care of his bride. And then in the in the Gospels, several times, Jesus even refers to himself this way. He is the bridegroom. 
And so this kind of story goes, isn't it? There's the bridegroom in the story who gets it wrong. But then there's the ultimate bridegroom who comes and look what he does. It is abundant and it is beyond expectation. It blows people's minds. It's beyond funny. It's incredible how lavish and abundant it is. Oh, that's good. And that's the point. I think, what is the application for me? What is the application for you? Well, being a Bay Baptist, just think about that. Well, I think the application is joy. Do not lose sight of what it means to follow God. It is joy. Because for all of the struggles, and sometimes the struggles come and we think, really, I don't know, is it really worth this? Is it really worth following Jesus for all the different things where I feel like he hasn't turned up or it's been a struggle, I've tried to follow him and it's meant suffering and it's meant pain and it's been difficult and I've been disappointed or whatever it might be because that's that's the story that I hear sometimes because following Jesus is a long, long journey and it doesn't always go exactly how you want it to. But the truth is don't lose sight of it. Remember this the joy, because that's exactly what this passage is about. It's about wonder. It's about glory. And that's who Jesus is. And that is the point, isn't it? We go back to what Chris quoted before from Hebrews. I appreciate that because it ties in well, doesn't it? It's the idea that that uh, this world will suck you in. It'll drag you away. It'll say, this is better on this side. Come over here. But Jesus stands there and he says, no, it's a lie. The truth is here. I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We need to be encouraged by that. We need to see the wonder. We need to see the God isn't there shaking his fist or shaking his finger at us. He's showing us love with open arms. And he says, what I have in store for you is far greater than anything you could ever imagine. Because I am far greater than anything you could ever imagine. And Jesus comes and he goes to the cross for you because you're in such a bad way. If you listen to this world, it says you don't need Jesus, you don't need a cross. But the reality is you do. That's why Jesus suffered infinitely for you. He went to that cross and he died. He rose victorious in order that you might have life. And he says, follow me and look to me and jump my way. When, you, when you've got a choice, you just need to jump my way. Say no to those other things, even though it's hard. Say no to those other voices and follow me. What will happen is it will be joy, and it will be joy for the other people as well because you love them. There's the opportunity for you to be an example and to call them back and to see that there is something greater in following Jesus. So it's a beautiful passage, the story of the wedding at Canada. Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. He's the obedient son that is filled with application for us. It's filled with wonder. We need to hear that wonder of who God is. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this passage and the story, the first miracle. It's brimming, really, with, with things for us. It's brimming with joy. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to encourage us this day. As we come around the Lord's table now, we break bread together, we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that we might have life. May we repent and worship respond to you from our hearts. Have your way through us. Use this church to be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name.